Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston, at The Place here on FreightWaves TV and in podcast world where we talk about oil, we talk about diesel. And since you can't get oil unless you drill, we call the podcast Drilling Deep. We also drill down each week with a guest, and this week it's Sarah Chu. She's a professor of supply logistics at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, and she's been, been doing a lot of work on whether blockchain is ever going to have an impact on the supply chain. It's long been hyped. Can it ever deliver? Let's talk about diesel, though. Earlier this week, a ban on European Union countries importing Russian diesel went into effect. It did so really without a ripple in the price of uh, the price of oil so far, the price of diesel so far. In fact, on January 3rd, the price of diesel on the CME Commodity Exchange finished a little over 277 per gallon. And that was just about one cent over where it finished 366 days earlier on Groundhog Day in 2022. In other words, after all the ups and downs over the last 12 months, the futures price of diesel was right back where it started. As of Tuesday of this week, that was still the same. It was where it was a year ago. The Russian diesel ban has two parts to it. One is the ban on EU countries importing diesel. The second is a price cap of $100 per barrel of diesel, what the cap means is that companies that are necessary for the trade in Russian diesel to continue can't offer things like ship insurance or ships themselves if the price of diesel uh, on the cargo is more than $100 per barrel. It's similar to the $60 per barrel that was imposed on Russian crude at the beginning of December. The price of the main grade of Russian crude is uh, that Russian crude is known as Urals. That price has been below $60 consistently since then. So there has not really been an issue with the shipping of that oil. Sh insurers and shippers alike are okay. Uh, since the shippers and the, in since the insurers and the insurers are overwhelmingly based in the EU, the organization can use its clout to enforce these rules. But we've not really had a test of how much the ban will, will, will hold because the price has been consistently below the trigger point for the rules to kick in that's in the crude market. The idea here is to allow oil to get into the market because really we do need it, but at the same time restrict the amount of money that goes to Russia as it persecutes its war against Ukraine. Now we'll get a test to see what happens with diesel. For starters, depending upon what measurement is used, Russian diesel is at or maybe a little above that $100 per barrel mark. Do not underestimate the power of the EU that the EU has over insurers and shipping companies. But what we may be about to get a test in diesel markets is something that we never really got in crude. The question then from the perspective of diesel consumers is whether supply lines will realign and diesel supplies from Russia that had gone into the EU previously, where will they go? And will, they, will the re supply lines realign enough that supply itself will be normal? That is one of the goals of the ban. Western nations know they can't easily replace Russian crude or diesel. So they have crafted this two-headed monster of a ban on EU imports and the price cap, hoping that supply lines will take Russian oil and send it elsewhere, where, which is pretty much what happened with crude. The bigger freight cost to move it more miles gets borne by the rush, but gets borne by Russia. So they have a cost in that. This is not completely painless. The fact is the world does need Russian diesel. I think we can declare 
as we did last week, that the winter is over, really, from a market perspective, from a diesel market perspective and a heating oil perspective. But that still ignores the fact that global diesel inventories are tight. In the U.S., where the data is the most transparent, they are well below where they should be. So it isn't too early to start thinking about next winter. And as I said last week, the building of inventories probably needs to incrementally start really soon to avoid a crisis next winter if we get a cold one. If the Russian supply lines don't realign as they did with crude, if the price gets above $100 per barrel and the restrictions on shipping insurance, shipping insurance and other things reduce the flow of Russian diesel, the market will be behind the eight ball already in terms of getting ready for winter 2023-2024. Remember, the heavy diesel seasons doesn't start with winter. It starts with harvest season, which is really in September and October. That's only about seven months away. The groundwork for it is being laid now. We're going to move on here now on Drilling Deep, as we always do at this point. The field of logistics in colleges is growing leaps and bounds. Enrollment is rising. Schools are adding programs. And logistics companies are looking at those schools as a major source of new talent for the future. And with that, professors in that field, they're in hot demand, too. So today we've got with us a logistics expert in academia, Sarah Shu. She is a clinical associate professor supply. She is a clinical associate professor of supply chain management at the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, up the road from Chattanooga, where FreightWaves is based. Previously, she was associate professor of economics at the State University of New York at New Paltz. And Sarah, you've just made that move down to Knoxville, correct? Correct. That's right. Yeah, I've been here uh, now for a couple of years um, as a professor, and really enjoy the people at UT. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about your background and, and how you got to become a professor of logistics. Yeah, so um, I was studying economics for a long time and um, eventually mostly focusing on um, the Chinese economy. And as things progressed and as the U.S.-China trade war progressed, I realized that, you know, the study of supply chain was really critical and that, you know, it's an up and coming um study that that a lot of people need to uh, get into and be educated about. So I decided to move into that area and um, ended up, I already have my PhD, but I ended up going back to UT and um, getting my MBA with a specialization in supply chain management. Um, and so now I focus on, uh, right now I'm studying blockchain in supply chains um, and still looking at, you know, what's happening with COVID and its impact on uh, Chinese supply chains and, and those around the world. All right, let's go to China in a, in a few minutes, but let's talk about blockchain first. And let's do a little primer on blockchain. Unfortunately, sometimes when you start to talk about blockchain, people tune you right out. So we're going to try to make this a very simple description. Uh, the best term that I've heard for blockchain is a distributed ledger. It avoids a central database, a, a, a central computer, a central server, uh, to manage the data that flows along the blockchain. Instead, the data is replicated to however many nodes there are on the blockchain. And with that, you eliminate a whole lot of slowdown that comes from that kind of centralization. And you also establish truth because if, uh, if you send out a data point that says 2 plus 2 is 4, that is replicated on every node in the blockchain, and therefore nobody can argue with that data point. If you want to hack the data system, you got to hack every single node on the blockchain. 
So uh, that is, the idea here in supply chain is that that could certainly make things move a lot faster instead of the slowness that sometimes comes with a central depository. What is the status of blockchain? First of all, Sarah, tell me how you thought my description was. And then tell me what is the status of blockchain adoption in the supply chain? Um, your description is really good. So, you know, you're right. It's, it's exactly like everybody having like, you know, let's say a spreadsheet on their own computer, the same copy. And if somebody comes in with a different copy, then, you know, we know that maybe they're representing some fake data or falsified um, information. So they're going to be kicked out for that. So we know that there is going to be one single version of truth. And this is like the dream of um, supply chain of digitalization experts who are, who are calling for um, digitalizing or digitizing information so that they can track goods throughout the supply chain. They know exactly where products are at any given um, point in time. And the blockchain just helps to ensure that there's just one version of that, that there's not like duplicates that are out there, which we know in supply chain management can happen um, when there are different records that companies make um, of, of products and some of the information might be a little bit off or different. Blockchain makes sure that there's a single source of truth. And um, so that's that's something that is, is really critical. Now, I know that a lot of um, supply chain managers have kind of gotten tired of hearing the term blockchain, have found it kind of costly to implement in their institutions and um, have had a hard time getting their suppliers on board with it. You know, I'm, I'm well aware of this and I know that there are some issues. What we say uh, with blockchain technology is that it's really at where like the internet was in 1996. It's, it's just in the process of being developed. It's something that takes time and it's not necessarily something that is going to solve all problems in and of itself. It takes governance. So it takes management getting behind it. It takes like teaming up with other parties, other, you know, suppliers and customers downstream to really get on board of things. And so right now we're trying to um, just set up lots of different uh, blockchains um, in, in smaller supply chains to get people up and running on it. Later, the hope is that blockchain will roll out to wider industries. Yeah, so Sarah, I think you touch on a particular point that's uh, unique about blockchain. Look, if I'm, if I'm a logistics company, if I'm a 3PL, I can make changes in my technology and they can be better for me. And then I will try to uh, extend that out to my customers and my clients. Uh, blockchain, you have to get an all-in, all-buy-in from a you know, critical mass of people for this to have any impact. So even if the technology works, it seems to me like the marketing and the changing of perceptions is a major is a major hurdle in blockchain. Yeah, I mean, you you don't have to put all of your information on the blockchain. So you know, businesses that that I've talked to, um, people have been putting just the parts on the blockchain that have to do with their supply chain um, for you know traceability, regulatory compliance, emissions compliance things of that nature. And so, you know, they're, they're moving on to the blockchain, um, what they can justify in terms of, um, of the cost right now, the cost of setting it up and getting agreement um, among different institutions. And, you know, we found when there's a particularly powerful buyer, like say Walmart or De Beers um, or companies like that, 
that they have a lot of influence with their suppliers and they can um, get their suppliers onto the blockchain. Not only that, but they can also make it easier for their suppliers to use the blockchain by um, setting up little apps that they can use on their smartphones so that they're not, no one's having to look at like the raw blockchain coding and, and enter that in. They're just entering their information. They, don't, they might not even know that it's on the blockchain. And so, you know, you don't want to necessarily at this point migrate your whole databases to the blockchain. I don't think that is the best use case. Um, but I think where we need to share information among supply chain partners, the blockchain really adds the quality of um, data being immutable, meaning that nobody can mess it up and that you can actually trust it. So that means that it can improve your tracking. Um, it can improve transparency throughout the supply chain. So you know where your stuff is, what the temperature was, um, and like humidity along the supply chain, things like that. Um, you also know where uh, there's potential for loss and waste. You know where emissions are happening. You can track things like uh, food safety, potential sources of um, like food contamination. Um, you can help to make sure that um, your your products are ethically sourced so that they're not coming from like child labor. Um, and and so in in industries where there's a really strong use case for blockchain, and it, it may not be the case for every single industry, um, but we definitely see that, you know, it's it's becoming important, especially for things like food and um, pharmaceuticals, uh, things that really rely on, um, you know, some sort of certification or ensuring the quality of the product. Yeah, that, that what you mentioned about the child labor, that was always viewed as a, a, an early potential for blockchain in the, the, the diamond industry, not just uh, blood diamonds, which are generally uh, viewed as diamonds that came out of war-torn areas in Africa, often developed by child labor, but just diamonds in general, uh, being able to track them through the entire supply chain and, get, again, generate a truth about their origin. Yeah, that, that has been a really strong use case. Wherever there's a need to um, verify transactions, so blockchain is not only transparent, it provides a record, but you can also go back and audit it. So potentially it can reduce the cost of auditing in situations where normally someone would go back, have to go back and check like provenance or, you know, make sure that suppliers check out, um, especially for companies that care about, you know, ESG goals, um, things of that nature is it's important. Um, also, we see a rise in use of blockchain due to need for regulatory compliance. So um, especially with the different types of um, emissions, it makes it much easier to track emissions from your um, suppliers when you use the blockchain, as opposed to trying to you know, get that information sent to you directly um, in, in data format or from another third-party app, which may not work for all the suppliers. Um, along the supply chain, it's just much easier to set up a group blockchain for that. So let, let's go. I, I started to touch on this before. Where are we in terms of theoretical morphing into the practical? Uh, are you seeing blockchain applications in the supply chain that maybe aren't like this killer application in which everybody is using it for every single piece of good that's moving out there? But are you seeing it primarily in terms of uh, activities within one company there where they need to share that information 
through the company or maybe a, a kind of a mini blockchain with a relatively small number of players on it? Yeah, um, you're right. So, so far, um, a lot of the blockchain use has happened within like a smaller group of suppliers. There, there are industries like the pharma industry where there is a larger group of suppliers that are on like a consortium um, blockchain. But for companies that are just getting up and running, usually they have you know a somewhat smaller group of suppliers there um, on the blockchain, just because oftentimes um, I've heard people say that they get to a point and it's hard to get the like 13th tier supplier on <laughs> the blockchain. But you know you can go pretty far, especially when you have a big company. And you know I know that FedEx has has tried it. Uh, FedEx is part of the Blockchain and Transport Alliance. Um, I know uh, Ford has tried it um, to try to track their, um, to try to ensure the ethical sourcing of batteries. And actually that has become a major issue. Um, the batteries becoming sort of like the blood diamonds, you know, that we saw a generation ago. Um, and so Ford is ahead in terms of doing that. We mentioned De Beers. Um, also uh, Nestle is using IBM Food Trust. And um, IBM has set up different types of blockchains to cater to different industries. Um, and so they are able to create supply chain transparency to track their um, food products over the course of the supply chain. Um, and so, you know, blockchain is becoming increasingly used, but it's still kind of um, on the verge as we see increasing regulations come into play um, to require emissions tracking, um, we still don't quite see the widespread use of that yet um, in the U.S. Um, and we don't, although we play, we <laughs> we will really soon. Um, and we also see increasing need for um, for customers to see the tracking of products to uh, verify, you know, authenticity and um, traceability, sustainability. There's increasing demand for those things. I want to make two points, and then we're going to move on to China. First of all, the Blockchain and Transport Alliance. Uh, came out of freight waves uh, early on, and uh, then we eventually handed over control of it to FedEx, which, yes, is making a major play. And the other thing that's kind of ironic, I think, about blockchain is that while it is certainly a decentralized system, it clearly is going to take a big player from the top down to get a wider adoption because they can flex their muscles and say, this is how we're going to do it. I mean, once everybody's on it, then, yes, it's decentralized. But you still kind of need that 800-pound gorilla to make it happen. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think so. I mean, especially at this point, it's either that. There are different ways to do it. Um, there's that, having a strong buyer in the room to try to um, force everybody, <laughs> for better or for worse, onto the blockchain. Um, another way is by having regulatory compliance so that um, you know companies can really reduce their cost of regulatory compliance by using the blockchain. So that's like an external incentive. And another is where, you know, we see also the rise of some blockchain consortiums, um, industries where, um, you know, it's just more beneficial, like with pharma, um, to, to have some sort of traceability, trackability um, to ensure not only compliance, but also um, ensuring that uh, everything that that is sourced is totally um, uh is not dangerous um, and is easily traceable. Um, so, you know, there are different ways to go about it, but definitely the having a strong buyer, <laughs> you know, is, is a good way as well. 
Well, let's move on. Let's move on to your. I'm going to. I hate to say your other area of expertise. It sounds like that's all you know about, but certainly an area of focus for you, which is China and the Chinese supply chain. Let me ask, start by asking a broad question. Uh, with the end of uh, with the end of zero COVID and some supply chains either having changed or attempted to having been changed away from Chinese dependence, what is the state of the Chinese supply chain? Yeah, you know, that is, that's a good question. I don't know that we fully understand the impact that COVID is having. But, you know, one thing that is is good about the removal of the zero COVID policy is that a lot of adaptations that um, international supply chains have had to make up to this point uh, will hopefully be alleviated after the first or second quarter of this year. Um, you know, what we see with the lifting of the zero COVID policy is that many, many millions of people, um, like hundreds of millions of people are falling ill with COVID. Um, but uh, on the on the positive side, a lot of people have been recovering relatively swiftly within two weeks or so. Um, granted, you know, many of the elderly have have been strongly affected um, by this COVID wave, but a lot of people in the workforce have been able to overcome COVID and are coming down with COVID, going back to work, and um, will hopefully be able to get back into production mode um, at the end of Q1, and particularly at the end of February um, is the hope at present. Okay, but what is the permanent impact on the Chinese supply chain. You, you hear a lot of talk about nearshoring, uh, either, either reshoring, which would uh, would be defined as production back into the U.S., or nearshoring, which would be closer, primarily Canada and Mexico. I mean, is, is the Chinese supply chain just simply too far away after something like COVID, after the disruption we've had, that it can never really get back to where it was? Well, I think it, it can get back to where it was. The question is whether companies, you know, I, I think that, like, We've gone from one extreme um, to the other, in, especially in some sectors like semiconductors, where um, we've said, you know, let's put all of our assets in China. Let's like do all of our manufacturing and processing in China to like, let's get out of China. That's what, you know, the U.S. policy um, has been with regard to China in the area of semiconductors. Um, but I think that a lot of companies are finding that it's hard to get out of China entirely. I know a lot of companies um, at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in China have have said, "Let's do China plus one. Let's do China. Let's do have some of the facilities in China. Let's have some of them in Vietnam um, or or elsewhere, um, maybe in Mexico. You know, do do the nearshoring." But I think that in general, many companies that are there have found that it's hard to get out, not only because there are lots of value chains throughout Asia. Um, so lots of like low, low wage labor in, um, in companies like Indonesia, Vietnam, um, as well as high skilled labor in, um, in countries like, um, Japan and Korea. And that all flows through, um, with China as a major, um, processing area. Um, and not only that, but China is a major market still. Um, and, and so there, it's not entirely desirable to get out of China completely, but, I think that companies are definitely more cautious. They definitely build up more inventory, as we've seen um, in various areas. And they're trying to do at China with at least plus one, if not more diversification. 
yeah, you just wonder if this is just the flavor of the month. And in a few years, you find that nothing has changed. We're going to have to, to wait and, and, and have you back. But before you go, I do want to ask you about the students of today and logistics students you're teaching. First of all, are you teaching mostly all logistics majors? Is there a major at, uh, at Knoxville? Or do you find that some students are just simply taking logistics courses because of, you know, this, this, we're now into our third year. We're wrapping up three years of tremendous focus on the supply chain and how if it fails, this country can be in serious trouble. So maybe there are some students just checking it out, but maybe you're getting a lot more majors as well. Definitely. I mean, we have a lot of supply chain management majors now, and, um, you know, they're especially interested because they've heard supply chain in the news so many times. I mean, from COVID um, to, you know, the blockage of the Suez Canal to, you know, China's lifting of the COVID and now like semiconductors, it's it's all over the place. Um, and so I think, you know, they're a lot more inspired than they have been in the past by um by the prevalence of supply chain in the business world and the fact that now many businesses are um, becoming, uh, you know, they're definitely awakened by the fact that they need to have uh, supply chain managers represented at like the top levels of business. Um, and so I think they're really, they're really quite inspired these days. Are you finding that your graduates are getting sucked up into a job like almost immediately? Yes. I mean, we have businesses that come to recruit all the time. And even in our department, we have our own um, recruiting people there. And, you know, all they do is talk to businesses that, that are looking for <laughs> new graduates immediately. So we have pretty much like most of our um, graduates, if, if they want a job in supply chain management, they get a job like relatively swiftly. <laughs> well, I always felt that the real announcement that the supply chain had arrived was uh, Jack White of the White Stripes uh, went out, is that his name, uh, went out on his tour and called this the Supply Chain Tour, which had nothing to do with what he was what he was singing or playing, but I guess that was just the hot term. So he figured he'd name his tour after that. So That's really funny. Anyway, we want to thank Sarah Shu of the University of Tennessee at Knoxville. She's in the Supply Chain, uh, the supply chain Management uh, uh, Division, or no, Department, excuse me. And uh, thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So you have been watching Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freightcast family of podcasts. You can hear us either just audio on all the major podcast platforms. You can see us on Freightways TV. I'm your host, John Kingston. Please join us again.